Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Thank you, Dr. Ngati, for testimony and also then challenging us to pray. And uh, I'd like to just start our time in the Word just with prayer. Let's do that. Well, Lord, thank you uh, for this testimony of your faithfulness in calling your servant, getting his attention. Thank you for his wife's faithfulness in following you. Thank you for the the pastors and friends that prayed. But Lord, the bottom line is you drew him and called Marshall to do this. And we thank you for sparing his life when it could have very easily been taken away and over. And I thank you that you've called him to this ministry. Lord, we know that uh, you brought him here for a reason. And we know it's no accident. And we truly believe, Lord, we are here today to be challenged and learn once again the need to pray. So I ask that, Lord, you would help us to pray for one another, that we would be faithful in crying out to you for your honor and for your glory, for your name to be praised and, and glorified, but that we would also pray for each other and lift each other up to you for you to transform our lives. Give us the courage to sign the card, to put our name down and our contact information. Give us the wisdom and the courage to be faithful, the tenacity to stick to it, and to keep praying, to pray without ceasing for your honor and for your glory. We ask that you'd open our hearts now to receive your word. Pray that you would bless us as we ask you also to bless the offering that we've just received. And we pray this now in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Well, what a privilege to be able to, to worship here this morning, to uh, kind of kick off summer and the joy of summer and the celebration of summer in this way. And, and I just want to say thank you so much for being here this morning. It's interesting that as Marshall shared his testimony a little earlier this morning in our service, one of the themes that you heard was his pride, that he could handle it himself. I'm fine, thank you. I've got this, thank you. I can, I can do this, thank you. I'll keep working harder and not being content and trying to be a success and trying to make things happen. You heard him say that several times and how God patiently got his attention and draw, drew him to himself to really know the Lord and walk with the Lord and to let the Lord use him. And we're excited for what God's doing in the Angadi's lives. And we're excited for the ministry that he's called us to join in, that we would be praying for one another in this way. Thank you for that. This morning, as we think about this testimony, I want you to look at another testimony of someone who struggled with his pride. As you know, last week we began reading through the story of Jonah just to kind of kick off our summer and be challenged again and reminded again about the undeserved mercy of God, how God loves us so much, how God is so faithful, so gracious to us, and he wants to extend his mercy to us. He wants to offer us forgiveness. He wants to accept us into his family. He wants us to find out his plan and purpose for our lives and for us to join that. And that's something that God mercifully does in extending that to us. And we see this revealed in the story of Jonah. Now, I think a lot of us, we we mentioned this last week, when we hear of Jonah, we think about, man, that guy got thrown overboard, he gets swallowed by a fish, and he lives to tell about it. What a whale of a tale. That's amazing. 
that that would, that would happen to him. But as I tried to remind you last week that the real miracle in the story of Jonah is not just a man somehow miraculously surviving alive inside the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. And I, I can't explain how that happened. I, I, I don't really know a, a, a zoological explanation for that. I don't really understand. I don't know what species of fish or, or whales would be capable of doing that. I'm not sure we really know. It's a miracle. And we have to accept it as a miracle. And I'm not just saying you shut down reasoning and turn off your brains and check them at the door and just blindly accept it. But, you know, God, if he can raise a man from the dead, if God can create the world miraculously by speaking the word, if God can do all these things, if Jesus can walk on water, if he can raise the dead and make the blind see, if he can do miracles, if there's a God that can do miracles, and certainly he can preserve the life of a runaway prophet miraculously inside the belly of a fish. But the real miracle, the real miracle that if we're honest that we struggle with is just how God is willing to extend his mercy and swallow us up in his mercy when we don't deserve it. And yet God extends his mercy to us no matter how far away we've run from him. And so as we were examining Jonah chapter 1 last week, and that's on page 774 if you'd like to use one of the Bibles from the chair in front of you and follow along, and I encourage you to do that. But as you, as you see there, you see Jonah is, is running away from God. He's been called by God to preach. Here's Jonah, this, this Israelite prophet a spokesman for God in the presence of God, giving God's message, and he loves preaching it to Israel. It's a blessing to the Jewish people, but now he's called by God to go and take the message to the Assyrians who were the world's superpower and were incredibly cruel and, 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 and oppressive and dominating and controlling the neighboring countries around them. They were, they were very violent people, and we gave you examples of that last week of just why Jonah, when God says, I want you to go and preach to Nineveh, the city of the Assyrians, Jonah's like, mm, not me, I'm not interested, I don't wanna do this. Because he didn't wanna help Israel's enemy. He was a true nationalist, Jonah was. He loved his people, he loved his country, and he didn't like the idea that God loved not only his country and his people, but he loved everybody, even the enemies of our country, people who are different than us. So Jonah runs in the opposite direction. God gets his attention, causes a terrible storm. Through a course of events, God reveals that Jonah's the culprit, and Jonah tells the men on the ship to throw him overboard, and he does that. He throws them overboard, and, and Jonah is there, sinking down into the water, and God miraculously sends a fish to swallow him up. And that's what we see at the end of chapter one. And that's where the story stopped last week. We pick it up today and think about what's going on inside the fish while Jonah's there. And so we begin reading in verse, I'm gonna start with verse 17 of chapter one and then read down through chapter two. And I invite you to follow along as I read. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. 
For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look into, upon your holy temple. The Lord, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought, me up, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then notice verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and had vomited Jonah out upon dry land. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's give thanks to God. Amen. You remember we mentioned last week that the story of Jonah is a true story. It's a real story. This historically happened. I have no doubts or questions about that. I'm not exactly sure how it happened, but Jesus very clearly mentions that Jonah really was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and he's mentioned in other places in the Old Testament as well. So this is a true historical account. But I also want you to understand that the way this story is written, whether Jonah wrote it himself or Jonah told the story and someone else wrote it down, we're not exactly sure. But Jonah, as he tells the story about what happened, he's probably past all of these events. Taken, I don't think he's actually in the belly of the fish with the stenographer's notebook, you know, writing these details down there in the slime and the muck and everything else in the belly of whatever fish he was in. I think as he's remembering it and the Holy Spirit helping him remember it and as he's telling the story later on, this is, this is recorded. But the story is written like a satire. It's meant to be humorous. And so that's why I almost bust out laughing at the end of verse 10 of chapter 2 that this great psalm of praise oh I give thanks to you salvation is of the Lord and then in my, you know Scott Morgan's paraphrase it says in verse 10 and God told the fish to up Chuck Jonah on the dry land there's this there's this humor there's this this sense of this great dignity and, and spirituality and reverence for God and I'm surrendering to you and God says well I'm not sure you really get it yet so I'm gonna make the the fish vomit you and throw you up why, why do we have that there? I think part of it is obviously that Jonah's got to get out of the fish somehow. So that's part of it. But I think the fact that he even uses the word vomit there is, is the idea of indicating that by that time the, the fish was sick of Jonah. And, and maybe what's even going on in this psalm is that God is saying, Jonah, you, you still don't quite get it. God is humbling Jonah here. God is humbling Jonah and allowing him to be thrown up by a fish onto the beach. How gross and disgusting and revolting as that would be. Yes, Jonah's alive. Yes, he survived. Yes, he's lived to tell the tale about the whale and he's able to go and do that. And, he, and we're going to see in chapter 3 that he does go to Nineveh and he does preach and God uses him. But this is such a humbling thing. 
Last week we talked about the fact that God's mercy makes us merciful. When we experience God's mercy in our lives, we can't help but extend mercy to others. But for us to experience the mercy of God in our lives, we have to be humble. God's mercy humbles us. When we experience God's mercy, we have to admit, God, I need this, but I don't deserve it. I I know I need your forgiveness, but I don't deserve it. I know I need to be rescued, but I don't deserve it. And would you please rescue me? And if you give it to me, it's not because I've earned it. It's not because I deserve it. It's not because I merit it in any way, but it's because it's a gift from you. And really all I can do is humbly say, thank you. I'll do whatever you ask me to do because I'm grateful. You might be saying, but wait a minute. I mean, this is a... A beautiful psalm, what Jonah writes. How he gives his praise to God doesn't, you know, that doesn't sound very arrogant. Well, did you notice that there were a couple things missing in this psalm? Did you see this? And I don't think I'm reading into this. I think I'm kind of pointing a few things out. It does say, I called out to the Lord in my distress, and, and he answered me. And out of the belly of Sheol, the place of the dead. That's what Sheol is. It's a Hebrew word. It's a concept of, of where the dead go after they die and await for judgment. So it, it kind of a synonym of the grave or the place of the dead. That's what Sheol means. And, and, and all of, of Jonah's experience is he's thrown out of the ship and as he's, you know, he's, he's treading water, flailing around, trying to stay on the surface of the water. And finally, he's just getting exhausted and he begins to sink and he's holding his breath as long as he can and he gets swallowed up by the fish. And he's rescued that way. Jonah saw himself, this whole peril of being thrown over the, the gunwales of the ship and hitting the water and beginning to sink. He saw this descent as he was sinking, sinking, sinking even deeper. And he saw this as a picture of his own death. You know, Jonah's so mad several times in the book that, of this story that he says, I want to die. I just want to die. Throw me overboard because I wish I were dead. I'm going to drown out here. And God is basically saying, well, I'm going to give you a near-death experience. I'm going to let you almost die. And Jonah saw that as he sunk down. He he recognized that God did rescue him just in the nick of time. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and billows passed over me. And then I said, I I am driven away from your sight, and yet again I will look upon your holy temple. And so he's saying, I'm going to pray one more time. I'm going to look at your temple. I'm going to imagine it in my mind's eye, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to talk to you, God, where you're present. Because the Israelites, they did that when they were, Solomon had said when he built the temple, if anyone turns in the direction of Jerusalem and prays, God, will you answer their prayers? And Jonah's saying that. Here I am out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. I'm sinking, I'm drowning, but I'm going to look to God. I'm going to turn to him and I'm going to pray. And I'm trusting that maybe, maybe God, you'll answer me and rescue me. And God does that. The thing is, Jonah never once in this psalm says, I did wrong. He never once admits, I rebelled against you and ran away. He never once says, I'm sorry that I've sinned. He never confessed his sin. He expresses no repentance, no making of a spiritual U-turn to come back to God. Why is that? It's humbling. 
It's humbling to admit that you're wrong. It's humbling to admit that you've done bad and you deserve God's judgment. And yet it's interesting that as we read this psalm, you see Jonah thanking God and giving praise, but I think that there's an undercurrent of defiance. God, I know you rescued me, and I'm thankful for that. I'm glad I'm not dead. I kind of had second thoughts about dying. Thank you for rescuing me. But I still don't want to admit that I've done what's wrong. Now, we could argue and say, well, maybe he said that and he just didn't record it. But it's interesting that when David sinned, he was honest and admitted it. Psalm 51, Psalm 32. We had other people admitting that they did wrong and confessing it. God expects us to be open and honest. I mean, that's part of being honest with yourself and then when you see what you've done to go make amends to God and with other people so that he can forgive, so that he can make the relationship new and rebuild it and reconcile. Jonah's doing all the talking here, and he's thankful that he's been rescued. He understands God has been merciful. He understands that God has spared his life miraculously through this fish. In fact, it's interesting that the wording that Jonah uses in verse 2 when he talks about distress, and he mentions the belly of the fish. In Hebrew, the word there for belly is womb, and distress is the idea of labor pains or a woman travailing as she's giving birth to a child. And it's as if Jonah is saying, you know what, it's like I've been swallowed up by this fish, but I'm going to experience a rebirth. I know this is not the end because you've miraculously spared my life. He keeps going. He says, I've been banished from your sight. That's the idea of driven away. I've been banished from your sight, yet I'm going to still turn to you and look to you. I know you're judging me, but I'm going to pray. The waters closed over me, verse 5 says, to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. The picture here that Jonah is giving sounds an awful lot like somebody being buried at sea. They take the body and they wrap it in a shroud and they put a weight on it and they slide it off a board into the sea and they're buried at sea. And Jonah says, that's what I felt like was happening to me. I was thrown overboard and I'm getting wrapped up as if in a burial shroud. That's what these weeds are doing. That's what these currents are doing. And I'm sinking down and I'm going to my death. But you have spared my life and I thank you for that. I went down to the land, it says in verse 6, whose bars closed upon me forever. He saw himself dying and going to the grave as if he were being thrown in jail and locked there, never to escape that this was the end. Yet, at the end of verse six it says, yet you brought up my life from the pit. You brought me up out of the grave. O Lord my God. Jonah's thankful. Jonah's extremely thankful for what God has done in rescuing his life and saving him. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Now bear with me here for a minute. It's interesting that in the book of Genesis when it talks about Noah in his ark, he's escaping the flood, so to speak. He's trying to survive. 
and not be flooded and drowned with all the rest of humanity and all the rest of creation, the animal life on, on planet Earth at that time. God spares Noah's life and the creatures that he brought with him into the ark and his family that he brought with him into the ark. And it says that as it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and as the floodwaters were over the, the surface of the earth, it says that God remembered Noah and spared his life. Jonah doesn't say, God, you remembered me. I remembered you. I understand I might be making a bigger deal out of this than maybe is appropriate, but I think, he's, I think we're on to something there. I think we've got a case where Jonah's saying, you know, it's a good thing I prayed. It's a good thing I thought about you, God, and called out to you for help. I'm sure glad I remembered to do that because then you came and rescued me. I looked to your holy temple and I cried out to you and I remembered you even though I was drowning. I mean, I was really busy getting all tied up with those weeds, buried at sea like this. I remembered you. I'm sure glad you rescued me. Thank you. I think a lot of us in life, we congratulate ourselves for all the things that we do to help God. The things that we say, oh God, I gave you a big gift this week. Put it in the offering. God, I volunteered that time on Sunday school. God, I gave this to you. I read my Bible for five minutes this morning. God, aren't I a good boy? And we tend to congratulate ourselves and we think we're doing God such a big favor where God would not spare your life and bless you and save you had he not remembered you. Had he not reached out to rescue you. Jonah would be dead on the bottom of the ocean, fish food. He would be that way had God, the Lord, not remembered him. And yet that's exactly what Jonah seems to forget. Yes, you did rescue me, and I'm very thankful. But he says thanks, but very stiffly he acknowledges that and seems to think that he should somehow get the credit for it because I prayed to you and I remembered you. Let's keep going. When my life was fainting away, verse 7, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came up to you. Now, as we come to the end of this psalm, I want you to notice two things that Jonah says that actually kind of comes back to convict him and you and I as the readers. Because, you see, Jonah emphasizes over and over what he's done, how he remembered the Lord, how he prayed to the Lord, how he looked to the Lord's temple, how he cried out to the Lord for help, and he's focusing on, this is what I did, this is what I did, and this is why you saved me. You kind of sense Jonah's pride and arrogance there. Well, look what he says in verse 8. I have to admit that when I was studying this, I thought, I, I understand, I think, what he's trying to say in verse 8, and I agree with it, but I don't, I don't get the context. Why does he say this here? Why is he saying this at the end of this psalm? It's truth. I believe what he's saying is correct. But why does he say it here at the, at the end of this psalm? He's thanking God for God's mercy, that God has rescued him. But then he says this in verse 8, those who pay regard, those who are devoted to idols, forsake their hope of steadfast love. The steadfast love there is God's mercy, his loyal love. If you choose, Jonah's making a theological point here. It's, it's, it's the way life works. One of those universal principles. That if you forsake the Lord and you worship an idol, whatever that idol is, 
you wind up not only forsaking the Lord, but you forsake any hope of receiving God's grace and his mercy and his loving loyalty to you in your life. You miss that. Your only hope is your, your idol, and your idol can't talk to you, can't answer your prayers, can't help you. Your idol is lifeless, witless, unable to help you. So if you trust in that idol, you don't get the hope and mercy that you need. If you trust in that idol, you won't get saved. You won't be rescued. And Jonah just kind of says, those who forsake and those who are devoted themselves to idols, they not only forsake the Lord, but they forsake the Lord's mercy, his forgiveness, love, and salvation. Notice what he then says in verse 9. But with a voice of thanksgiving, I sacrifice to you. A little bit of arrogance there. I'm different than the idol worshipers. Those guys that were running the boat. Did you see them, Lord, while we were up on the deck of the ship during the storm? They're praying to all their different gods and goddesses. They were offering sacrifices. They were making vows and promises to this whole group of people, these deities and false deities and idols and They were worshiping them and they could not help them. The storm raged on. It wasn't until they prayed to you, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the self-existent one, the true and living one, until they cried out to you, that's then and only then were they rescued. I'm not an idol worshiper. I give my vows of thanks. I pay my vows to you. I offer thanksgiving and sacrifices to you. I do this. I'm a faithful Israelite. I faithfully worship you. I'm not like those idol worshipers. And yet Jonah forgets that after he got thrown, in fact, I don't think he really understood, didn't see it, unless he could see it from the, you know, bobbing up and down the water. The men on that boat, they began worshiping the God of Israel, the creator of self-existent God, Yahweh. They begin honoring him. They begin worshiping him. They begin praying to him and praising him and offering sacrifices to him. And when they got to shore, they offered sacrifices to him and they gave thanksgiving and they made vows to God, solemn promises. They were already doing what Jonah promises to do. They were already doing it because they received the mercy of God, he rescued them and they saw that he was the one true God and they humbled themselves before him. And they began worshiping him. Jonah says, I'm not like those idol worshipers. I'm gonna offer sacrifices to you, the true God. I'm gonna pay my vows, my promises to you. I'm gonna make sure I do that, God, because I'm one of yours. I belong to you. And yet, Jonah is no different than an idol worshiper because it's interesting. There's another passage in Scripture that talks about this. If you rebel against God, it's as if you were actually practicing witchcraft. If you're arrogant, prideful, don't think you need God's help, think you've got it made by yourself. If you're arrogant, it's as if you were an idol worshiper. Oh, witchcraft, terrible sin. Idolatry, terrible sin. And yet God says disobeying him and being arrogant is just as bad. Jonah's like an idol worshiper here. Even though he belongs to God's chosen people, even though he's a prophet called by God, even though he has been miraculously rescued by God, Jonah's still full of pride. 
He thinks it's because of him that God has done this. So in a very real sense, God is pointing the finger back at Jonah. Jonah, you point your finger at those idol worshipers and you say that you're better than them because you're worshiping the true God. Well, watch it, buddy. Your pride is going to come back and bite you. But then notice what he then says. With the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. I will pay I will, what I have vowed, I will pay. And then notice verse, the end of verse 9. What is, what is that little statement there? Would you read it for me? Let's read it out loud. Good and loud because some need to wake up and you know, kind of hear what's going on, okay? So what's it say? The last sentence of verse 9. Good, loud voice. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You need to say that one more time. Good, loud voice. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah says here very clearly, the only reason I got rescued is because God is the one who rescues. God is the one who saves. This little sentence, one of the older study Bibles, maybe you used it when you were a kid, says this is the theme verse of the entire Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And I think they have a good point. Jonah is saying here, God, you're the one who saves. And it comes from you, not idols. And he's right. No other idol, no other God, no other thing that you and I would worship or depend upon, whether it's our own nationalistic pride, whether it's our own self-sufficiency, whether it's our finances, our technology, our intelligence, our popularity, whether we're trusting in the, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of things and possessions, the pursuit of power, trying to control others. Whatever we worship, Whatever we sacrifice to, whatever we give first place in our lives, Jonah says you will forsake the loyal love of God, the merciful love of God. You'll miss out on his grace and mercy. And Jonah is right in saying salvation comes, it belongs to the Lord. But to get that salvation from the Lord, you have to humble yourself. You have to admit that you need that salvation that your idols won't rescue you, that your own self-sufficiency won't save you, that your own power and intelligence won't give you the victory over the enemies of life, the things that are trying to control and enslave you in life. That's why we say at Celebrate Recovery, it's only Jesus that can rescue us. That's why we're celebrating him. His grace is enough for us. Not your grace, not my grace, not, not our power, it's his grace is enough for us when we admit that. When Jonah is saying that salvation belongs to the Lord, he's saying that God is the one who originates salvation. He's the one that gives the victory. He's the one that rescues people. He's the one who truly saves people. He's the one who does that. There's no other God. He is the, he is the sole Savior. S-O-L-E. The only Savior. Besides the Savior of our souls and our bodies. He's the only Savior. It comes from the Lord. He owns it. He's the one that gives it. Jonah recognizes, I'm not sure how he did, but he recognized that it was, unless God had saved him, he would not be saved. He acknowledges that. But he thought that he deserved it. And God is trying to say through this passage, Jonah, you don't deserve this. It's nothing that you've done that makes me show my mercy to you. 
There's nothing that you and I can do to merit God's forgiveness and acceptance. It's a gift that he gives when we put our trust in his son, Jesus Christ. There's nothing we can do to manipulate God. There's nothing we can do to coerce God or put God into our debt so that somehow he will help us and rescue us and save us. It's only when we cry out to him and admit, God, I've sinned, I failed, I'm broken, and I'm lost, and I need you. I need your mercy, but I don't deserve it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It comes from him. And there's nothing that you and I can do to make him give it to us. We can only receive it by grace, by accepting it through faith, trusting in him. There's one other little thing about salvation here in this statement. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Did you know that in the Hebrew language that this was written in, the ancient Hebrew language, that the, the word group for salvation and saved, it's the, it's the Hebrew word Yeshua. And some of you know that that's the Hebrew name for Jesus. Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua. And here, Jonah is naming the name of Jesus. Now, now he doesn't know Jesus yet. Jesus is not going to come for another 750-some years until he's born in Bethlehem. But Jonah is saying, whether he understands it or not, that salvation comes from God, and God has to be the one to provide the salvation, and God has provided salvation for you and I through his son, the Lord Jesus, Yeshua. He's provided salvation for us. And so there's Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, laid in the tomb, condemned as a criminal, rejected by his own followers, abandoned by them. An enemy of the state, condemned by the religious establishment. There's Jesus, humiliated on the cross, buried in a, in a borrowed tomb. But God the Father exalts Jesus and raises him back to life, and he's alive forevermore. And so even in the world today, when people look at Jesus, they say, why would I want to follow a man who died such an excruciatingly, humiliating death? How can I worship a man that you say is dead but somehow has come back to life? That sounds like a fairy tale. And so the intelligentsia of our culture, the, 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 the scientific community, the educated class, they tend to look upon the story of Jesus and they say, that's such a fairy tale, it's so fanciful. It seems foolish. And there are others who value power and control and authority, and they look at Jesus and they say, how weak, how humbling, how humiliating that he would die that way, that he says, love your enemies, that he, that he was willing to turn the other cheek, that he was willing to suffer that way. Why would I ever follow someone like that? That seems so foolish. And then the religious crowd that says, I've got this. If I pray the right way, if I give the right way, if I worship the right way, if I do these rituals the right way, then God's in my debt and I can kind of control my religious experience because I do what God tells me to do and he owes it to me. And they look at grace and they look at salvation through Jesus that it's a gift and they say it's foolish. It's foolish. Because the intelligentsia and the religious crowd And the power crowd, they say it's foolish because you have to humble yourself 
to receive it. There's one more crowd. I'm just going to call them the busy crowd. They've got their careers, they've got their hobbies, they've got their families, they've got all these things that are so important in their mind and they spend all their time keeping those plates spinning in their life. And they say, I don't have time to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. That's foolish. If I do that, these plates are going to drop and my life is going to spin out of control. It's foolish. But Jesus says, if you don't seek me first in my kingdom you'll lose everything. Jonah would say, if you forsake those idols of your family and your career and your happiness and your wealth and your security, you seek those idols, you forsake God's loving grace for you. You'll never get it. Now who's the fool? Jonah thought he deserved God's rescue. But God mercifully provided it. And to teach Jonah one more lesson, he tells the fish, swim towards shore, and I want you to hurl Jonah out onto the beach. I want you to throw him up. And the fish says, thank you. My stomach's been bothering me for three days. (laughs) I'd be very glad to. And the fish obeys when Jonah didn't. And I'm sorry, but the scripture talks about a drunken person throwing up, falling down, wallowing in their vomit. It's a picture of humiliation. It's a picture of something so repulsive and disgusting. And yet that's Jonah on the beach, gasping for air his eyes getting used to the bright light, the waves splashing over, thankfully washing him off. How humiliating to be in a fish's vomit. And yet that's what Jonah needs to learn. That's what I need to learn. So I'll never get God's mercy unless I humble myself and admit I need it and I need to receive it his way. God's mercy makes us humble. God's mercy humbles us. You'll never receive it otherwise. So as we tie this all together, it's our salvation that seems so humble, so foolish, so weak. And yet there's no other name under heaven given to people, to humanity, whereby we can be saved. It's the name of Jesus, Yeshua. It's trusting Him, the one who went to the cross and died for your sins and mine so that we could be forgiven and accepted into God's family. It's trusting in Him who raised from the dead, who's alive forevermore, who one day will come back in power and glory, not humiliated, but vindicated, exalted. We must choose to surrender to him and humble ourselves and admit to him that we need him today. It's a hard thing for us proud Americans to do. Us middle class folks, I mean, we work hard. We try to dot the I's and cross the T's. We try to do all that's right. I know we try to play by the rules. 
But that's not good enough. Because we need a Savior. We need someone to rescue us. And salvation belongs to the Lord. Will you humble yourself and receive that salvation, that forgiveness and acceptance from God? Will you receive it from Him? There's two things I want you to know about as we end our service today. We're going to receive the Lord's table, communion. This is a ceremony that Jesus gave to his disciples the night that he was arrested and betrayed and went to the cross on that Thursday evening before Good Friday. Jesus was having dinner with his disciples and he took a piece of bread and he took a cup of wine and he broke the bread and he said, this bread represents my body and I'm giving my body for you. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die for you as your substitute. And this bread reminds you of that, that you need my life, my substitution for you. You need that if you're going to live eternally with me. And he took the cup of wine, this red wine, and he said, this wine, it looks like blood. It reminds you and me of the blood that I'm about to pour out as I die on the cross. And the Bible tells us that without the cleansing of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the blood of Jesus Christ does cleanse us from all sins. And so to receive his life, to receive his forgiveness, to receive that welcome acceptance into God's family, it's through receiving Jesus. And this eating the bread and the cup is not receiving Jesus. It's a reminder of our need to trust in Jesus and receive him, to humble ourselves and take him, to be our Savior and our Lord. So I'd like to say a prayer over the bread and the cup and ask the Lord to bless it so that you and I could be blessed by it. Again, it's just a piece of bread and it's just a, a sip of grape juice. There's nothing magical, mystical about it in any way. The power lies, its power lies in what it reminds us of, that Jesus humbled himself to save us. Would you pray with me, please? Oh Lord, we give thanks to you for this day. And we thank you for the great privilege of being in your presence. And I thank you for this bread and this cup that reminds us of Jesus giving himself to save us. It looks foolish. It looks like a waste of time. But I thank you that Jesus lives. And that he's worthy of our worship and praise. And I'm asking and praying that you would bless this bread and bless this cup. That we would remember Jesus and honor him. While our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. The second thing I wanted to call to your attention today, this is even more important. If, you've, if you're willing to admit to yourself and to God that your pride has been standing in the way of you really trusting Him, if you're willing to admit that you need His forgiveness and acceptance, if you're willing to admit that you need God to show you mercy, to welcome you into his family. If you need God to rescue you, maybe there's a hurt or habit or a hang-up that you're struggling with, and maybe today's the day that you want to say, God, I need your salvation. I trust in Jesus. Would you just tell him that in this quiet moment? I humble myself and I admit that I need to be rescued. I trust in you. Would you just pray that? In your heart, the Lord is listening to us. He hears you. He knows your thoughts. Would you trust him?
And while we're still in prayer, I just want to invite you that after we take communion, when we're dismissed, I'll be up front here. And if you have a question about what it means to trust in Jesus or how to be saved, or you have a question about prayer and, and how does God work through prayer and how to pray, uh, Marshall and Grace and Gotti will be up here also, and they would be very happy to talk with you and pray with you, as I would also. Lord, hear our prayers. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.